I think about religion as a as relationship. I don't think of it as just a set of facts to master or, you know, a kind of test to, to get through, uh, or even, you know, kind of who's right and who's wrong, uh, who's, you know, who's on the right team. Uh, for me, it's, it's all about relationship, and every kind of relationship requires patience. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Patrick Mason. He holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. And he's written or edited several books, including one we'll reference today, Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Romania in 2015 and is a past president of the Mormon History Association. Patrick Mason, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So I wonder, what to you is transformative about LDS doctrine? I think if I were going to distill it to a couple of different things. So so for me, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Mormonism is uh, it thinks of itself as as a restoration of Christianity. So we oftentimes talk about the restored gospel or or the restoration. And so it's always in conversation with the broader world of Christianity, of Christian doctrine. So for me, the question is, what does Mormonism add to what other Christians have or what's distinctive about it? Because there's a lot of things that are shared in terms of the commitment to Jesus Christ, to, to, to salvation in Jesus. So for me, the, the, the two distinctive things that Mormonism really adds are a notion of exaltation and a notion of Zion. And what I mean by that, and these are terms that are used within the religion a lot, but with exaltation, it's this notion of the kind of limitless potential of every individual, that we are all literally children of God, that we are all the offspring of divinity, every man, woman, and child on this planet, even given the, the, the wide variety of circumstances that we find ourselves in, everybody has the opportunity for progress, uh, not only in this life, but, but in the life to come as well. Uh, infinite ability for, for, for progress and growth. And that to me is really exhilarating. And, and along with that, it's not just an individual affair, but it's also housed within the family. The, the notion that the family bonds that, that we have, the, that they're sacred, and that these bonds also extend across the generations as well. It's the individual person, but within the, the, the kind of bigger web of relationships we, that we have within families and across the generations. And then the, for me, the notion of Zion, we don't live in isolation. We don't live uh, on our own. We live in community. Mormonism gives me a vision of what it can look like to build a just and righteous community that takes care of all of the people within it. Uh, that addresses all the issues of injustice and poverty and and racism and all the other kinds of things that divide us in this world, that we actually can be empowered to build communities to address all those things. And, and so I actually think that the Latter-day Saint congregations are a really great microcosm of trying to do this very imperfectly uh, because we're dealing with imperfect people. Those are kind of the two things that I hang my hat on, this notion of exaltation, the notion of Zion, what's transformative for me. I heard you speak within the last uh, six months or so, and you were introduced by a student who thanked you for being available for office hours and odd questions. 
And so I'm thinking, as a professor, you do have so much interaction with students from different religious backgrounds, very, very uh, intensely taught and intensely pursued, or some that are discovering this for the first time. Is the idea of black and white thinking a problem for people when they discover something they didn't know before? It seems like some people could react and say, well, clearly I've been lied to. Or some might say, well, okay, I've got to dig into this a little bit. Why the different reactions to learning something new? Yeah, I think part of it is just our natural development as human beings. We we grow up with a kind of black and white world, but that gives us a kind of moral framework. It gives us a kind of solidity, something to stand on, to know right and wrong. This is what, you know, any good parent does with their children to try and instill with them this sense. And so, and we know this developmentally as well for, for teenagers in particular, they have very strong sense of what's right and what's wrong, uh, what's good and what's bad, uh, oftentimes different than what their, what their parents say. But that's just part of natural human development. To, to come into to college as, an, as a 17, 18, 19-year-old with those that kind of orientation to the world. And for some people, that sort of carries through for their, their entire life, and, and it can serve them well, uh, and, and it provides a kind of moral framework. But, but for a lot of people, and I think increasingly, especially in an age of information, they recognize that that just two-dimensional world doesn't fully capture the complexity of of what life actually presents them. So actually, this is this is uh, what we try to do uh, in higher education, especially within the humanities and social sciences, is we try to to introduce our students to a world of complexity. We try to help them think critically. we We try to help them to be able to to assess what kind of evidence is good evidence and the kind of sources of evidence, how to weigh conflicting evidence uh, because sometimes the data will will disagree. Yes, we, we try to teach them specific things. And in, in my courses, there's always content that we need to cover. But even more important than any of that, I think really what uh, undergirds the entire endeavor of, of higher education is this idea of giving students the skills that they need to assess, to, to evaluate, and then to make use of this incredible tidal wave of information that we all have uh, available to us. And that means dealing with complexity. In your book, Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt, you present yourself as an excellent test case of someone who had to walk through this, of being on an LDS mission, telling people that certain things that they had heard were not true, and then coming home, doing more study, and discovering to your dismay, I think, that Mm -hmm. those things actually were true, and then having to reconcile. Can you talk more about that? I went out as a, as a missionary for the LDS church. I was 19 years old, and I thought I knew a lot of things. I was the one knocking on their door, and so I was I was approaching them, and and many of them had, had encountered the, the religion in one, one way or another, and some of them had pretty strong feelings about it and, and disagreed with some of the things that, that we were teaching, and, and they would oftentimes present things to me, certain aspects of the church's history or the certain aspects of the church's doctrine that, that they had learned. And some of those things were new to me. Some of those things were unfamiliar to me. And so my normal mode was to kind of deny everything. You know, if, if I hadn't heard it before uh, in my 19 years of life, then it, <laughs> then it must not be true. 
And so I remember fervently denying certain historical developments, things about uh, Joseph Smith in particular that I had never heard before. And so I just knew that, that they were making up, that they, they, they were lying. And, and as you suggested, when I, when I came back from my mission and had the opportunity to take some classes and do some reading on my own, I, I realized that, that some of those things that I had fervently denied, in fact, were, were true. I wasn't lying to people. I just didn't know any better. I was, you know, I wasn't willfully misleading them. It it was an important lesson for me in intellectual humility that uh, maybe I don't know as much as I think I know. Maybe there's more out there. Maybe in the absence of evidence, I I, I shouldn't uh, claim quite so much until I've actually done 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 my research. I've had the opportunity over the years to to then dig into to, to lots of those kinds of things that that were troubling at the time or that have been troubling to lots of other people. And I've come to come up with my own framework and my own answers to, to make sense of those things and to build them within a framework of faith, to incorporate them uh, within my faith life. But it's a process and it's it's taken me a long time and, and I'm still still doing it. The difference between culture and doctrine, I think, gets muddied a little bit. Even uh, we may focus on American culture and thinking something is actually part of our church because it's happening right. here. Was it helpful to you, and maybe I'm making an, an assumption, that you had some grounding? I'm I'm guessing that, that you believed in God and you had reasons why you believed in God even before that mission. Certainly. Yeah, I was raised within a Latter-day Saint family and with, with, within the, the, the culture of the church. And so I was sort of nurtured within the faith from uh, from birth. That that was the entire framework that that I had to work within. And 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 I studied and I and I worked and I attended and I did all those kinds of things to to, to eventually develop my own faith. But but it is a process and it does take time. And children do kind of lean on what they're told by their parents and, and by other adult leaders at church. And part of that time of being a teenager into college years and into your 20s is a time of sort of individual differentiation. You've got to make that decision. What do I believe? Okay, so this, these are the stories that have been handed down to me. This is the framework that, that I was given. Do I buy into it? Am I going to make this mine? And am I, am I going to inhabit that world that, that's been given me? And, and for me, uh, through a series of spiritual experiences, some quite powerful ones, others more mundane and, and everyday, I came over the years to, to decide that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to continue to, to inhabit and take ownership of these stories and, and, and this tradition that's, that's been given to me. In your book, you talk about this way of having some grace for each other and respecting the experience of the other. How can we do that and have some bridge and maintain a conversation between the, I don't know what we call them, the hard and fast facts don't matter, I know what I believe, or and, and I, I hope not to be pejorative or judgmental. I'm trying to think of how to define that. And others who are seeing things as much more fluid and not what they expected. Yeah, I, th- I think you've put your finger on on one of the hardest things for us to do, not only within our church culture, but within the broader uh, yeah. culture that, yes. that we share. I think we are we see today complete deficit of empathy, of generosity, of trying to to walk in another person's shoes, to 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 see things through through their viewpoint, of the kind of just curiosity of what makes another human being tick. 
We have hunkered down into our respective trenches and bunkers, you know, however we define that. And in, in some ways, it's a very natural human thing to see other people and other perspectives as dangerous or threatening, right? What's this going to do? I'm, I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at. I don't, I don't want to be shaken up. But I, I, I just don't think the world we live in affords us that luxury. We, we live in a world of tremendous diversity, and you don't have to go very far. I mean, in most people's own families, they experience that kind of diversity, whether it's religious diversity or viewpoint diversity, political diversity. And so this, this is literally like at the dinner table, or at least at the Thanksgiving table. What does it mean to be in relationship with somebody who sees the world differently than you do? And maybe started out very similar to you and then changed their mind through a series, series of experiences. And those are the hardest ones for, for people of all, right? It's like, hey, we, we used to be on the same team and then you changed the team, right? Or, or I changed the team. And, and it's really hard, especially for parents and children uh, to, 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 to be able to, to navigate this. Mm. Many people who will read your books or take your classes are kind of already in a learning mode and exploration mode. So there may be times you find yourself preaching to the choir yeah. with, with people nodding or maybe even a sigh of relief. Oh, somebody gets it. <laughs> how, how is it when you are not preaching to the choir? When someone comes to you, this may be their first exploration and they think you're crazy. Some people think I'm crazy, for sure. Uh, <laughs> and that's where then I have to, to do the very thing that I was just talking about. That's, that's where I have to, to approach them with curiosity, with empathy, with humility. I want to know why they feel so strongly about where they are, about their, their position, right? Whether it's politically or religiously or, or, or whatever. What is it that for them is, is at stake? And why do they feel so like, like my viewpoint or, or somebody else's viewpoint is, is dangerous or threatening or wrong? So but, but before I try to like solve the, the, the situation or, or something like that, I, I want to listen to them and, and I want to hear their perspective. And, and inevitably, or almost inevitably, I mean, there are some people that I just have had a hard time getting along with, right? I mean, that's because <laughs> I, I, I'm not perfect. In almost every case, once I hear somebody talk about their experiences and why they feel so strongly about a particular thing, that, that's just another human being sitting across from me uh, with hopes and fears and, and loves and, and disappointments and, and all of those kinds of things. At, at that point, actually, I, I think it's being able to find that kind of human connection uh, that then allows us, uh, we don't have to agree about anything and, and they still may walk away thinking I'm completely wrong and, and, and vice versa. But at least what, what I want to do is, is try to maintain the kind of the human relationship. Like, hey, can we, can we keep up this conversation? Can we maintain enough of a relationship where we're going to disagree about certain things, but, but we may find something else that we agree about or simply that we just respect each other as human beings? I think that... It's it's hard to do. I'm certainly not perfect at it, but I think that is a skill. Those are some muscles that we need to flex a little bit more in our culture. Uh, the kind of curiosity uh, and and frankly love uh, for another human being to be able to kind of enter into their world, even if at first glance it's it's totally antithetical to to the way I I see the world. When, when I'm in that conversation with them, the, the burden isn't on them. The burden is on me to try and understand their their point of view. And, and maybe they'll feel the same way. 
Well, I think it's a beautiful idea to get in our mind when someone is maybe hinting that we're a little off track. Yeah. That instead of getting our dander up, that that we would say, here is my chance to exercise love, which is actually a core <laughs> a core principle of what I do believe about God. Yeah. I had a bishop of, of the congregation once who said, God gave us two ears and one mouth, so we should uh, listen twice as much as we talk. I'm not good at that. <laughs> I am a professor after all. So, I wonder if you could talk about the idea of that we don't have to make an instant decision when we're presented with new faith information. On a, I'm reading from Planted here, uh, page 165. Sometimes we tend to think we're either in or out. We either believe or we don't believe. But humans are more complicated than that. Part of it goes back to what I said earlier about that we, you know, we're usually operating from a deficit of information. It's very rare in this life that we actually are acting based on perfect knowledge or perfect information. And I think that um, that for some people that instills a kind of paralysis. I can't make any decision. I can't do anything because I don't have all the the information I need. What, What I hope it inspires in us is not only the humility that I talked about earlier, but also patience. And that's another virtue. I think it's a godly virtue that is uh, in short supply uh, these days when when everything, you know, we live in a culture of instant gratification and the smartphones that we have and notifications and all these kinds of things that are meant to to um, to keep us active all the time or looking for some new thing. And, and patience is is in short supply. But for, for me, I always think about I think about religion as a as relationship. I don't think of it as just a set of facts to master or, you know, a kind of test to, to get through uh, or even, you know, kind of who's right and who's wrong, uh, who's, you know, who's on the right team. Uh, for me, it's, it's all about relationship and every kind of relationship requires patience. Um, any relationship that matters, whether it be a friendship, whether it be certainly in a marriage, the, 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 the patience to know that um, you don't know everything, you don't know the other person perfectly, but that you know enough that you're going to stay with it, right? That there's enough grounds for trust. There's enough grounds for faith. Uh, there's enough grounds for love to, to, to hold on and be patient while you, while you get more information. Now, not every, not every relationship works out. Uh, for, for some people, at a certain point, the relationship breaks down. But I, I think uh, oftentimes in our lives, we could, we could probably do with a little more patience and a little less snap judgment. Do you ever find conflicts or, or do you find that they wed with each other your personal faith and scholarship? Yeah, there are conflicts, to be sure. Uh, and and I've had to spend you know the past few decades, especially as I've taken a deep dive into the history of my own faith. In some ways, it's safer to to study somebody else's religion. <laughs> but I made the the ill advised <laughs> decision maybe to study my own. No, it's actually been tremendously gratifying and rewarding in in the whole. But there are there are times where you learn things that don't square either with prior expectations or or what you what you grew up with. There are heroic stories, you know, in the history of, of my faith. But there are also uh, a lot of times where my co-religionists didn't live up to their best ideals. Even some of the leaders that, that I would say are, are prophets and apostles of the church, uh, that they're not always moral exemplars. They don't always get everything right. 
So to be able to sort of wrestle with that, to, to, to grapple with the kind of complexity there, to, to actually give myself space to be disappointed sometimes, because I do want the, the people in my church, I want the people in my faith to be great. I want us to live up to our ideals. I want me to live up to my ideals, but I don't. So I'm not sure why I should expect anybody else to, to, to be perfect when I don't expect that of myself. And so, so certainly there, there's conflict there. There are still issues that I still haven't fully sorted out because um, either an absence of evidence or because I look at the evidence and I'm still trying to make sense of it. And I'm trying to, to put that in harmony with the other things I do believe and are at the heart of, of what I know to be true in terms of my own religion. So some of these conflicts get resolved over time. There are a lot of things that I had questions about maybe 10 or 20 years ago that I feel more comfortable with now, uh, that I've come to a kind of resolution or at least reconciliation. Other things that for me are still active questions, uh, but those things don't overshadow. This is part of the patience that I was talking about. They don't overshadow in the relationship that I have with my faith, the, the things that, that I have come to, to know and to trust and to have faith in. I wonder if I could ask, I mean, you've got this great picture of Leonard Arrington, black and white, yeah. on your wall. And he really was, if I understand correctly, the first trained historian to be brought in, trained in in the procedures and the way that records yeah. were kept and how they were and, and were, how access was given to them and all of that. Have we learned something from his time? Are we doing better or 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 worse? I've, I've heard everything from... Well, the facts, let the facts speak for themselves. And then I've also heard the phrase, which you've heard, uh, not everything that's true is useful. And is there some way of, of, of finding the right road there with accurate history? Yeah. Well, there's always a tension for institutions, any institution, not just religious institutions, to, to just open up their archives and invite everybody in. You know, I mean, I don't know of any corporation that opens its financial books to anybody who wants to see them, <laughs> even if they're not trying to hide anything. I mean, you know, some of it is just private or confidential or uh, or will only make sense in, in certain contexts. And so so that's been the story in a lot of ways of, of Latter-day Saint history that you're right. So Leonard Arrington in the early 1970s was the first professionally trained historian with a PhD in history uh, to become the, the historian of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to lead the church uh, historical department. And, and he initiated a, a, a whole range of reforms and, and opened up the archives more and, and made it uh, more transparent and open to scholars. And that made that that was new. And it was, again, this was pre-internet by several decades. And so the idea of just like open access and opening the things up, it did make people uncomfortable. Um, there's always this tension. So then there was some retrenchment and, and the pendulum swung the other direction. But in this century, in the 21st century, the LDS church has, has really not only gotten back to where Arrington was in the 70s with his colleagues, but actually has gone even further. Uh, I think they, they've learned that, especially in the internet age, that um, the greater openness and transparency is actually good for institutions. It enhances their moral authority rather than, than uh, taking it away. And, and, and actually, if, if you're an organization like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that believes it's in its own mission, that, that believes that actually God is working in and through the church, then there's a, a greater confidence of, of saying, you know, we don't have anything to fear. 
Is the history perfect? No. Are the human beings who made up the church, including its leadership, perfect? No. But we can absorb that. We can make sense of that because we believe the mission of the church, we believe the, the work that God is doing through the church is bigger than the mistakes or successes of any one individual. So, so I think Leonard Arrington and, and his colleagues at the time really put us on this path. It was a little bumpy uh, for a little while, but I, I think um, the future is really bright in terms of the LDS Church's ability to, um, to, to disseminate and grapple with and, and really engage its history in, in an honest and forthcoming way. I wonder if there's anything that I don't know to ask you that I should ask you. Uh, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not not sure. What, I mean, we could talk about music or sports. We could talk about all <laughs> kinds of things. I, I'm a big Notre Dame football fan. Uh, but um, I think for me, the the thing that maybe not everybody knows, especially if they just read my books or, or things like that, is um, how central my faith in Jesus Christ uh, is and has become in over, over the past several years. It's always been there. It's actually had a transformative experience as a young missionary that that really initiated and grounded my, my faith in, in Jesus Christ. But it has deepened in really significant ways in recent years. And so what I want to be and what I want to project into the world, again, very imperfectly, and I'm often frustrated with myself, but all of it comes back to to my own personal faith in, in the life and teachings and, and atonement of, of Jesus Christ. That for me is the center of everything. And I try to try to live that out into the world. And so for me, my, my religion, my faith has become a way to do that. And, and I've, be, I've just become much more conscious about that. I hope that that comes through uh, in, in some of the things I write and some of the things I, I say, but I want that to be the core of, of my being. Thank you, Patrick. What, what is the name of your most recent book? So most recently, I, I uh, wrote a book called Proclaim Peace, The Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. I uh, co-wrote that with David Pulsifer. He's a professor at BYU-Idaho. And that book is it's a reflection on what do Latter-day Saints scriptures say about the problems of, of violence and war and conflict, and how do they point us towards a, a life of greater peace. Patrick Mason holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU, that's Utah State University, and is a much-published author and lately a much-consulted consultant <laughs> on matters of faith. Thanks. It's been great to be here. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod or on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio.